You're listening to the Coastal Church Audio Podcast with Pastor Dave Coop. Well, we are going to continue on a series. We're talking about fighting the good fight. And you may be wondering, what's the fight about? The fight's about your faith. There is a very real enemy. And what he would like to do is get your faith. That's what he's after. Your faith is your strength. And it's not about your money. It's not about your relationships. It's not about other issues, really. The whole primary goal of our enemy is to come and get your strength. Come and get your faith. That's why it's called the good fight of faith. He's after our faith. It's a real world. And he would like to think, he'd like us to think it doesn't exist, but it exists. And our response as believers is to say, okay, it's going on. I'm going to understand how he operates, what he's up to, and I'm going to respond accordingly. We don't give him any more credit than he's due. We don't want to give any more attention than we should to it. But we, the Bible says, don't be ignorant of his devices. So we want to walk a balanced walk in regards to our enemy. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. I hope today that you discover some gold in this service. Did you know today, in 1896, they discovered gold in the Klondike on Bonanza Creek? A little bit of trivia for you this morning. And I hope this morning you discover gold in God's Word for your life today. That it enriches your life for you this morning. As I mentioned, the battle is over your faith. Maybe presently or maybe possibly because you're searching for God and you want to have a relationship with Him. He would love to stop that process. He'd love to deter you off your quest to know God. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, we're told to fight the good fight of faith. And that is all about trusting our Father. We spend two months talking about our Heavenly Father, understanding Him. Because the Bible says those who know their God, those who know their Father, their Heavenly Father, will be strong and will do great exploits. God's got a great exploit in mind for you. He's got a great project in mind for you. He's got a great life in mind for you. But in order to live that out, you must know your God. And to know him is to know that his name is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. To know him is to know that his name is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals you. To know him is to know that his name is Jehovah Nissi, his banner over you is love. To know your God is to know that about him. And when you know that about him, strength comes into you and you do great exploits. While our enemy comes along, he does not want you to know your father because then you're strong and do great exploits. His goal is to isolate you from God, from others, to weaken you so you can't carry out that great exploit that God has for your life. Now, we're told also to resist the powers of darkness firm in our faith. A lot, about, a lot of this is about our faith, our trust, our relationship with God. Your enemy's goal is to drive a wedge between you and God. That's ultimately what he wants to do, is to drive a wedge between you and God. Anytime a military goes in to take another country, one of the first things they'll do is they will destroy the lines of communication. They'll go into a city. What do you do? You bomb the lines of communication. You take down the television station. You take down the radio station. You take down any line of communication. Because if you can destroy the lines of communication... That city, that country is very vulnerable. And your enemy is no different. He wants to destroy the lines of communication, first of all, between you and God. Have you ever felt in your life like there's a brass ceiling above your head? It feels like, God, where are you? I feel like my communication with you, where did it go? I feel like, God, you're not listening. 
God, where are you? It feels like there's cement above you. We're like, where is God? I'm praying, but nothing's happening. What's going on? Your enemy is trying to take the lines of communication. He's trying to sever that because if he severs that and you say, oh, God's not listening. He doesn't care. I don't feel God's presence. If you're in your spiritual journey and you don't feel God's presence all the time, it does not mean that God has left you. Actually, it might be a compliment that you can live by faith and not by feelings. And even if it feels like God's not there, just keep obeying God anyhow. And give the devil a black eye. Say, devil, it doesn't matter what I feel. You may try to bring this about with me, but I will serve God no matter what. I will praise him no matter what. My hands will be raised no matter what. I will sing no matter what. I will not let go of my communications with God. David said, I would, I would have despaired, but I knew I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So one of his first goals is to try to sever those lines of communication between us and God. Then he tries to sever the lines of communication between us and others. His ultimate goal is to isolate you, to pull you away from everybody, because that's when he can really attack your mind. Then we're also told that it is our shield of faith that protects us from the flaming arrows that Satan shoots at us. I have a shield of faith here this morning to demonstrate. This is my trusty shield of faith. Now, yeah, you've got one of these too. Actually, you got it with you this morning, but you have it with you in the spiritual realm. Because when you got up this morning, you had the armor of faith, armor of God on you. you we, we wear it 24-7. We don't take it off for night and put it on again in the morning. It's a nice little analogy. Okay, I get up this morning, I'm going to put on the armor of God. Just wear it 24-7. It, it works good. In, this, in the spiritual realm, you can wear armor 24-7. The shield of faith, again, because he's after our faith. If the faith goes down, the trust, relationship, communication with God goes down, then the arrows can penetrate and hurt us. But I like what the scripture says when Paul said, take up the shield of faith. You have to take it up. Because it quenches how many darts of the enemy? Every dart. Every dart is every dart. That means none, none can hurt you. Isn't that good news? The Bible says that no evil shall befall you. No plague comes near your dwelling. God set this thing up that you would be a winner. He set this thing up that you would be more than a conqueror. Now, we've got to work with God, work with his plan for that to happen. But we have a shield of faith which quenches every fiery dart of the enemy. The fiery darts are usually thoughts that come at your mind. But as we raise the shield of faith, those fiery darts are quenched. Think about it for a moment. Why does he shoot fiery darts at you? He shoots fiery darts at you because he fears you. He's afraid of you. He's afraid that you might understand your identity, who you really are. He's afraid of you because inside you is strength. Inside you is great exploits. Inside you is greatness because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so he shoots arrows at you. 
You don't shoot arrows at something that you're not afraid of. You don't shoot arrows at something that you're not worried about. You shoot arrows at strength. You try to take down your enemy. So the very fact that he's tempted you, shot arrows at you, is not a sign of your weakness. The fact that you've been tempted is not a sign of your weakness. It's a sign that he's afraid of you. Oh, I'm being tempted. Oh, I must be so weak. I must be so worldly. No, you're not weak. You're not worldly. You're strong. That's why he's shooting them at you. So it's good for us to have the right perspective on those things. We fight the good fight of faith. We don't fight people. We don't wrestle flesh and blood. It's easy to kind of mix it up that way, but we don't win that way. We win if we first fight it in the spiritual realm. You can neutralize it in your prayer closet first. Cheryl's dad was a great example to us for that. He's a businessman. He was the, oversaw the, the operations for Canadian linen in Western Canada. And his role for the various plants they had, he had to negotiate with the union. And he would go into the negotiations, and he was often asked to go and negotiate at other locations on behalf of the company. The reason they wanted him to negotiate was because he got good results. The company won, and the union won. And anytime you can resolve those issues quickly, and a win-win comes out of it, they're saying, we want you to do the negotiations. But what he didn't tell everybody was what happened in that room prior to the negotiations. Before he met with the union, before his team and the union team met, he always asked to go into the room prior to the meeting. And he'd walk into that room prior to the meeting, and over every chair, he would pray. If you're a business person this morning, you may want to take notes on this. This is a great secret. This is something that you could use in your business. You can use this in your family meeting. You can use it anywhere. He would go into that room, and he would pray over every chair. And as he'd walk around that room, he would serve the powers of darkness notice under the name of Jesus Christ that they had no business being in that meeting. Every spirit of fear, every spirit of control or manipulation or intimidation that would try to work in that meeting, he understood his identity, he understood his authority, and so before the meeting started, he walked in that room and he says, I serve you notice. I am having a meeting in this room, powers of darkness, and you have no right, you have no jurisdiction, you have no business being here, for it is written, the light of God dispels all darkness. In me is the light of God, and so I forbid you to operate during my meeting in the name of Jesus. I lift up his name in this room. And he'd walk around, and he'd pray over every chair. This is amazing. Sometimes I'd stop and pray at a chair longer, and I knew who was sitting in the chair before they sat in the chair because as I prayed for them. He neutralized it first in the spiritual realm. He wasn't wrestling with the union. He wasn't wrestling with the management team. He knew where the battle really was. There's a very real world outside this world. New York Times did a poll that came back and reported on it. They surveyed a lot of people, and they asked them the question, do you think the devil is real, or is he just symbolic of evil? 62% said, no, he's just a symbol of evil. So majority of people think, no, no, he doesn't really exist. He's just a symbol of evil. That's a lie he'd love for you to believe. 
you're very easy to manipulate, control, and influence that way. The interesting thing is after my father-in-law prayed to the room and they would then have their business, union settlements happened very quickly. And he said in the meeting, they would ask each other, say, we're usually very upset. We're usually, this is, you usually don't talk like this. I, I can't believe we're being friendly to you. What's going on here? It's like their strategy was spoiled. Why? Because in the spiritual realm, it was already neutralized. It's a great way to do business. We can work really hard in the natural, but it's so much better to take care of those things first in the spiritual realm. Took a little time, took a little effort, but that little bit of time, that little bit of effort was a lot less work than months and months of painful negotiations. Folks, we have an authority in the spiritual realm. You have an authority in the spiritual realm. That's, that's a fact. And the last thing your enemy wants is for you to recognize your identity. He'd like that to be a mystery to you. But it's no longer a mystery. It has been revealed to us. Oh, yeah. In an old, old book called Christian in Complete Armor, William Gurnall writes, It is the image of God reflected in you that so enrages hell. It is that at which demons hurl their mightiest weapons. The last thing he wants you to know is that you are a reflection of God, created in his image. Now, when Satan came to Jesus to tempt him in the wilderness, the first thing he does is he undermines his identity. And if you look at the temptation of Christ in the wilderness carefully, you'll see with every temptation, it starts with this if. Here we have it in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If, if you are the Son of God. He knew he was the Son of God. Obviously, Jesus knew he was the Son of God. The world around already knew that he was the Son of God. Certainly, anybody who was there at his baptism knew he was the Son of God because when he was water baptized by John the Baptist, out of heaven, God spoke audibly, This is my beloved Son. It was a fact. He was his Son. But Satan comes along, and he likes to take truth and then put a twist on it. Because if it was just twist, we would get it. We would recognize it. But he's a deceiver. So he takes truth, and he just adds a twist to it. I know it's not a politically correct story in downtown Vancouver, but I'll, I'll share it with you. Anyhow, on the farm, we used to poison a lot of gophers to get rid of the gophers. And so we'd either poison them or we'd shoot them. And so we would, it's, it was good. It saved horses' legs and cattle's legs. And so, but the way we poisoned the gophers was we would take a bucket of oats, and then we'd put just a little bit of poison in the oats. There was only maybe 1% poison, 99% oats. But we'd put that in front of the gopher hole, and that's how we exterminated or got rid of an overpopulation of gophers. If we would have just put poison, guess what? They would have never eaten it. But we put mostly oats and just a little bit of poison. When the enemy comes at you, it's mostly oats, just a little bit of poison. It's mostly truth, but just a little bit of poison. You see, in the sense is, if you are the son of God, just a little twist on it. What's he doing? He's undermining his identity. He's getting him to question his identity. What did he say to Eve in the garden? Did God really say? Did he really say? It's so slight. 
it's just a little twist on it that if you're not alert, which Peter said, be spiritually alert. If you're not alert, you won't catch it. So it's important for us to be spiritually alert to catch the twist on things. Then in Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, he says to him, if you are the son of God, again, he's undermining his identity. His tactics really haven't changed. Why does he want to undermine your identity? Because in your identity is your authority. And that's what he fears, that you would recognize it because then he's powerless. His only power over you is if you accept what he says and believe it. Because if you don't believe what he says, his words, remember last week's illustration with the balloon, it's just a bunch of hot air. But if you internalize it and accept it as truth, then it will chain you. So if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He shall give us. Now watch this. This is another great example of how he twists the truth. He's quoting Psalm 91. Does the devil know the Bible? He does. But he twists it. And when he quotes it, he doesn't quote all of it. He doesn't quote all the verses. He kind of just cherry picks a little bit out of there for his purpose of deception. He says, if, uh, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for his written. He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. He quotes half of verse 11, all of verse 12. But it's interesting. He completely misses verse 13. Because in verse 13, it says, and you shall tread upon the lion and the serpent, the young lion and the, and the uh, cobra, you shall trample underneath your foot. He knew that was referring to him, but he avoids that. He leaves that part out when he's tempting the Lord. He just twists it a bit. This is his mode of operation. Then in verse 9, Matthew 4, he says to him, all these things I will give if... You fall down and worship me. What's he taking away again? He's taking away that relationship with the Father. He's trying to get us to back off of that. So Satan can tempt us and persuade us, but again, he cannot decide for us. He's responsible for the temptation, but really we're responsible for the transgression. He cannot make us transgress. He cannot make us sin. We would do that. But he is only responsible. He, he, he does the tempting. But if we resist it, the Bible says he flees from us. He flees in terror, another translation says. He's afraid of you. That's why he sends arrows. He's afraid that you might know your authority. He's afraid he might know who you are. That's the last thing he wants you to discover. Yeah. So uh, there's a couple of stages that he, he, he brings us through. And... In his book, Wild at Heart, John Elridge talks about three stages. Number one, this is a stage, he tells us, I'm not here. And we've already talked about that. We're pretty familiar with that. And in that stage, we really haven't woken up yet to our identity. And so we we live in this deception that we don't think he exists. He likes that. That's easy for him to work in. The second one is a stage of intimidation. This is where he threatens you to retreat. And in this stage, you realize you have power and you have identity. You've exercised it. And then he comes back at you and threatens you and says, wait a minute. You better not go any further. If you go further, if you continue on this path, I am going to come at you. In the Wild at Heart series we've been going through, one of the guys talks about a retreat. They were getting away as a bunch of guys to just be alone, be with God, get built up in God. 
And the day before he left, his wife calls and said, honey, I had an accident with the car. And then she calls a little while later. She says, I just lost my diamond out of my engagement ring. Can you please come home? And I don't know if you should be going on this. All this is going on. And he said, wait a minute. The enemy does not want me to go on this trip. He's intimidating me. He's trying to get me to back down from going on this trip. We'll fix a car. We'll buy another diamond ring, whatever it takes. But I am going to get away with these guys and grow in God. I will not be intimidated by my enemy. I'm not backing down. And he stood up to that. And, of course, he had great victory that weekend. But he'll come along. He'll try to intimidate you. When you stand up and say, wait a minute, you know, I recognize what you're up to. He'll try to intimidate you. Do not be intimidated. God didn't give you a spirit of fear or intimidation. He gave you a spirit of power. He gave you a spirit of love. He gave you a spirit of sound mind. Do not be intimidated. Jesus didn't just have to resist him once. Our Lord resisted him three times before he left. So sometimes it takes a little bit of push, a little bit of push, a little bit of push, and then he goes. Don't hesitate to push again and push again. Say, no, 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 I'm not backing down. Paul said at one place, having done all, stand. Sometimes you've done everything you know to do. What do I do when I've done everything I know to do? Just take a military stance. It's not like, oh boy, I hope this goes away. It's not that kind of stance. It's, you know, feet shoulder width apart in the spiritual realm, looking eyeball to eyeball like a fighter, and you're saying, I will not back down. You cannot have my marriage. You cannot have my family. You cannot have my business. You cannot have my country. You will not. I will not be moved. And it's that I don't, I will not, I don't know what else to do, but one thing I won't do is I won't back down. See, you're a warrior. You're a soldier. We're not passive in the spiritual realm. We're, we're designed to do Great exploits. Yeah. And then the third stage he talks about is often the enemy then will, if that, we don't give into that, he'll come along, he'll try to give us some kind of deal. In this stage, he may say, you know what? You may come along. The author, John Eldridge, says what the enemy did to him. He says, you know what? John, you have done enough. You have impacted more men. You've helped more people than most guys. Why don't you just coast now? You've done pretty good. You've written some books. You've helped a lot of other men. Now just coast. Take it easy for the next couple years of your life. That's what he'd like us to do. Now we get to slack off and just kind of coast the rest of our life. There is no coasting. We're on the narrow path. We're on a path that goes upwards. We go from glory to glory. We go from strength to strength. We don't at some age say, oh, you know, now I'm 65. I get to slack off the rest of my life and I'm just going to coast. You can't coast. We got one life to live. We have one life to give. And then comes heaven. You can retire from your job, but don't retire spiritually. Stay, stay going on. I've seen parents do this. They'll, they'll be really strong and vigilant while they're raising their kids. And then when the kids are growing up and leave home, all of a sudden, they kind of coast. The kids come home and say, I can't believe you're doing this. Man, when we were growing up, you would have never done it. But now you're, what are you, man, you were always in church when we were growing up. And now you hardly ever come to church. Well, what's with that? Oh, we're, we're coasting. This is a stage three attack. Yeah. In the movie, The Matrix, I don't know if you've seen the movie. It's an interesting story. And there's a lot of spiritual 
uh, analogies to it. But in this movie, there's a hero. He's an ordinary guy, and he lives a pretty ordinary life. He's a programmer for a software company. And in the real world, the world of going to work, eating at his favorite Chinese restaurant, paying taxes, he's known as Thomas Anderson. Nobody special in his own words. But he discovers that the real world is bigger than he thought, that in fact he's caught up in a supernatural battle against sinister forces, and they're called the agents. And they control what he thought was the real world through deception and intimidation. He gets a new name. His name's Neil. He gets a new identity, and he's much more dangerous in the story. The beginning of the end of the story are the agents taking, and it takes place in a subway station showdown. And up to this point, everyone has always run from the agents. Neil's about to run, but he turns to face them. And watching from the world beyond the world, one of his fellow warriors turns in amazement to their leaders and says, what is he doing? And the leader says, he's beginning to believe. She says, believe what? Believe who he is. And then there's this brutal battle that takes place. And in the battle, the agent knocks him down onto the subway track. There's a train approaching, and he grabs... Neil, and he puts him in his headlock, and he says to him, Hear that, Mr. Anderson? That is a sound of inevitability. It is the sound of your death. Goodbye, Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson was his old name, but he got a new name, and he says, My name is Neil. And with that, he jumps up and he wins the battle. He said, now your enemy, not much has changed. Because he comes along and says, this is you. The old you, your old name. And he mocks you. He mocks you with your new identity because he reminds you of your old identity. The Bible says if any person is in Christ, he's a new person. Old things passed away. Everything became new. But he tells you, oh, this is you from your past. He will remind me of stupid things I did when I was a teenager and try to tell me that's still who I am today. And you know, I, I don't know if you've done this, but I'll find myself thinking, about, oh, you know what, maybe. Uh, wait a minute. Where is this coming from? It's a lie. That's not who I am. I have to rise up like Neo in the Matrix and say, no, I am a new person in Christ. I have a new identity, and you're powerless over this identity. It's that authority that comes with it. He put a new heart in us, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, where it says, I will give you a new heart and new and right desires, and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll take out the stony heart of sin and give you a new obedient heart. Listen to what John says in his book here called Wild at Heart. He says this, "You you are not your sin. Sin is no longer the truest thing about the man who has come into union with Jesus. Your heart is good. Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. The big lie in the church today is that you are nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. You're a lot more than that. You are a new creation in Christ. The New Testament calls you a saint, a holy one, a son of God. In the core of your being, you are a good man. People need to hear that. The real you is on the side of God against the false self. Knowing this makes all the difference in the world. The man who wants to live valiantly will lose heart quickly if he believes that his heart is nothing but sin. Why fight? The battle feels lost before it even begins. No, your flesh is your false self, the poser, manifest in cowardice and self-preservation. The only way to deal with it is to crucify it. 
Now, follow me very closely here. We are never, ever told to crucify our heart. We're never told to kill the true man within us. Never told to get rid of those deep desires for battle, adventure, and beauty. Yeah, the real you is that new heart that God put on the inside of you. That's who you are. The Bible calls you a saint. He calls you more than a conqueror. The last thing the enemy wants you to go is, this is who I am. Wow. And then also, we should mention Colossians chapter 1, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations has been revealed to his saints. We get this opened up to us. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. That's among us. Which is Christ in you. You're a reflection of Jesus. That's why when you stand up and use his name, it drives him nuts. That's why you stand up and you quote his word. He runs in terror. One time the enemy was bugging me. And you know what I said? I said, shut up. He came back again. I said, shut up. He came back again. I said, shut up. You know the interesting thing happened? Interesting thing is nothing happened. He kept coming back. Because shut up doesn't do it. Shut up. It feels good to say it, but it, he doesn't run from shut up. He runs from, in the name of Jesus, get out. Or he runs from, it is written. It is written. That's what he runs from. Shut up might work sometimes in the natural, but it doesn't work in the spiritual. Your identity, last page here, wrapping this up, includes authority and power of Christ. Not just power, it includes authority. Look at Luke chapter 10, 1920. I have given you. Could you put your name in there this morning? I have given you. Whatever your name is, I have given you authority. Let me say Ernesto. And I have given Ernesto authority over all the power of the enemy. I have a friend Ernesto here this morning. Do you know what? He has power over all the enemy. And Ernesto... Ernesto can walk among snakes and scorpions, and Ernesto can crush them. Nothing will injure Ernesto. But here's a warning. Don't rejoice just because evil spirits obey you, Ernesto. Rejoice because, Ernesto, your name is registered as a citizen of heaven. Rejoice that you have a relationship with the Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to download free notes from this message, then visit our website, www.coastalchurch.org.